before I get started, I should say that I inadvertently wore green this morning, so this is a neutral green. There's no, no symbolism going on here, any degree. So as Brad mentioned, we're beginning a new teaching series this morning, and the topic that we're looking at today, and the topic that we're going to continue to look at going right up into the Christmas season, is probably a topic that as individuals, and even as a society, we probably don't think about very much. It sounds and it even feels a bit outdated, to be honest. And some of you may even think, you know, this really isn't even that relevant anymore. And you may even think it seems a bit unnecessary. And the topic today is the topic of idolatry. Now, if, if I'm posed with this question, I thought about this earlier in the week, the first thing that I think about when I think about idolatry is idols, which probably makes sense. You know, hopefully some of the education I went through helped me understand some root words there. I mean, idol is part of idolatry, and so when I think about idolatry, I think about idol worship. The second thing that comes to my mind is the Bible. That's the second thing I think about because I think about all the different stories and references in Scripture to idolatry and to idol worship and to making idols and to bowing down to idols and not to do that and how it's disobedient. I think about stories of, uh, in Genesis, the first time we hear about idols when, when Jacob and Rachel, they end up leaving Laban, Laban's home after he had to unjustifiably work there for so long. And so Rachel decides to kind of get back at her dad and she steals the household idols. I don't know if you remember that story, and, and they go off, and then later on she lies about doing it, and, and she hides them. And, and I think about other, other stories, the prophets, over and over and over again, they talk about idols and how you shouldn't worship idols. And, and I think probably most of all about the second commandment. You guys remember what the second commandment is. First of all, the first commandment is, love the Lord your God. And the second commandment is to not make for yourself an idol. And, and the Lord is so explicit about it. He says, do not make yourself an idol in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not make an idol bow down and worship that idol. And that's generally when I, what I think about when, when I think about idols. And the sad thing is, perhaps the revealing thing is, is I think about idol worship. I think about stories in the Bible because I can't think of one time in my life that I faced an idol. I can't think of one reference in my life or my friend's life or my family's life where they've talked to me about this, this physical image that they have in their life, whether they created it or they bought it or they worship it or, or they pray to it. I can't, I can't think of, of one instance in my life about that. And I'm guessing here today that I'm probably not alone. There certainly are areas and parts of the world, and there certainly are, certainly are people in our culture where the presence of idols and perhaps the worship of idols is, is still something that is done today. More than likely, it happens in, in different parts of the world than it does here in our society. But you're probably in the same boat that I am when you think about idolatry. You probably think about idol worship, and you probably think about biblical stories, but I'm guessing that you don't really think about idols in your own life. You may struggle with the idea of why this would be a relevant topic. But what's intriguing to me is when we think about the scripture, and when we think about how the scripture is useful and profitable to its readers, 
back when it was originally written and for us today and for all time, we have literally hundreds of references to idolatry. Hundreds of it. We have stories in, in Exodus and in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomies about uh, idolatry. We hear uh, the psalmist sing about not going into the, the worship places of the pagan idols and, and giving their hearts over to it. Prophets, again and again, as I mentioned, they keep saying, turn away from these pagan idols. You need to be worshiping the Lord. You, you can't do both. And it extends to the New Testament as well. The early church, the book of Acts, we have a bunch of different references where Peter and Paul, they're saying, hey, d- don't, don't worship these pagan idols, these, these idols of the Romans and, and of the Greeks. And, and uh, it's not just isolated either. It's not just a contextual thing where they say, hey, Church of Ephesus and Church of Corinth and Church of Thyatira, like, be careful about these idols. We get a sense that this is applicable to us too. That it's just not just this one incident about idolatry. And so the, the question remains is, well, why don't we think about idols in our own life then? If this was such a big deal in antiquity, if this was such a big deal a few thousand years ago, and, and even contemporary writers talk about idolatry here and there, why don't we think about it? Why do we think just about idol worship and maybe about the Bible and, and maybe about some pagan religions that do this stuff, but why can't we name idols in our life? Or why is it no longer relevant? And the thing is, is that the stakes are huge. This is a huge topic. The warnings of the prophets, the words of God against idolatry, it's some pretty serious stuff. Uh, We're told to flee from idolatry, to run away from it. We're, We're told that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is it then? I mean, if if these are the warnings that we receive, what is idolatry? And how in the world are we supposed to run away from it if we don't even know what it is? Now, today's message specifically is is, uh, about idolatry, helping us understand what it is. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at specific temptations, specific idols that exist in our lives so that we can get a better sense of how to combat that. But today I want to isolate the topic just down to that question of what is idolatry? What are these idols? What's the significance of it in our lives? And so we're going to turn to a story that helps address it. It's a story, in my opinion, that's probably the the central story of idolatry in the Bible, probably the most important story, and it's the first one that we see. We have a couple incidences in Genesis that talks about idols, but this is kind of the first long story that we get an understanding of what is idolatry? What's idol worship and how does it change people? What's, what's the whole root cause here? And the story is found in the book of Exodus. So uh, please, in your Bibles, turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. And before we jump into the text, I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of the book of Exodus as a whole. Now, it, hopefully the, we don't lose each other here and hopefully this is of interest to you. If, if you just kind of endure this part of the message for a little bit, we're going to come around and see why this is important. But I want to give kind of a bird's eye view of the book of Exodus, because a lot of the Old Testament books are frankly, they're written in a different style than what we're accustomed to reading. Sometimes we just, we just don't understand that. And Exodus is a narrative. We follow the people of God from their bondage in Egypt to them being saved by the Lord's hand through the number of the plagues that God puts on the Egyptian people and he delivers them and it continues on this narrative as they as they go and they wander and they're on their way to the promised land 
But interestingly enough, it's not necessarily written in a chronological fashion. And we're just so used to that as, as Westerners. As just part of our society, we just think that way. You know, A, B, C, D, boom, it just keeps right on going. Why would you write a narrative if you weren't going to do it in chronological order? That just doesn't, doesn't make sense. But a lot of the, the Old Testament writers, and some of the New Testament writers for that matter too, that wasn't all that important to them. It really didn't matter. A lot of times they would abandon chronology because they wanted to emphasize something else. So sometimes they'd put uh, two stories together. They'd sandwich them together so that you can go compare the two things. Or they'd want to raise a value or elevate a theme. And so they'd say, well, forget about if that happened, you know, two years ahead of time or, or five years afterwards. Uh, this is a, a more important point. And we actually have that happen in Exodus. It's going to be important for us as we look at this text. So what we have is we have the people uh, leaving Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up. He, he hears from the Lord. They make a covenant with the people. He gets the Ten Commandments. This is all good. And then he gets a whole bunch, whole bunch of instructions from God. This is in about chapter 20 to chapter 31. About 11, 12 uh, chapters here. So he gets a whole bunch of instructions about the tabernacle and about priestly law and about how uh, people are supposed to interact in societal settings. And the tabernacle specifically is interesting because the tabernacle is really like a tent. It's, it's, it's called a, it's kind of a portable tent, and this tent actually houses the presence of God. So essentially it's God's house before the temple is built. And so because it's portable, as they're wandering around, they just kind of pick up this, and there's a whole bunch of laws about who can pick it up and, and making sure everyone's safe, but they pick up this tabernacle, and they move it with them, and the people can say, there's our God. There's Yahweh, our God. He's going with us. That's his, his physical presence, and, and they go on. So that's kind of the first part. We're going to, uh, chapter 32 is what we're just about to look at in a minute, and, and this is where everything goes haywire. This is where the Israelites, they, they sin greatly, and uh, we're going to look at that text in just a minute, and then right afterwards, to the end of the chapter, chapter 33 to chapter 40, it goes right back into the same, same dialogue between Moses and God, talking about more instructions, more commandments, and then it goes into the implementation process. And we see how the priest's garments are woven, and we hear about how the, taber the tabernacle is built, and uh, how all this is implemented. And finally, at the end of the book, the perfect story ending in chapter 40, we see the actual presence of God fills the tabernacle. And his, his holy presence rests there for the people. So that, that was just a little bit of a side note. Like I said, it's, it's going to be important in, uh, in just a minute. And so we're going to now isolate our text to, to chapter 32. And so Moses, this is the part of the story. Moses is talking with God. God's given him the Ten Commandments. And the people, the story begins with a complaint by the people, actually. So this is chapter 32, Verse 1, the book of Exodus. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now Aaron is Moses' brother. So he's kind of second in command. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So to backtrack a little bit, we have Moses, who's the unquestioned leader of of God's people. And he performs uh, a number of miracles through God's power. He leads the people out 
I mean, just incredible stuff going on. And now, just, you know, whatever time frame we're at, these same individuals who have experienced this, they say, we don't know what happened to this guy. I love that phrase, as for this fellow. It sounds so like we don't even know this guy. I don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. As for this fellow, who knows what he's doing up there? Maybe he got bored and he's taking a long winter's nap. Like, what is going on with Moses right now? And so you get a sense that these people are a bit scared. They're not quite sure what's going on. They knew Egypt. They're, they're rescued from Egypt, but now they're just kind of hanging out at this mountain. And Moses is nowhere to be seen, and they're getting restless. They're feeling a little bit of anxiety here. And Aaron uh, is the person that they turn to, and they say, well, let's, let's make some gods here. Let's, we need to find out who's going to lead us, and so let's, let's put together some gods. And sadly, Aaron really doesn't do too well in his response. He says in verse 2, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the gold rings from their ears. They brought them to Aaron. And so Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we have people literally taking earrings out of their ears giving them to Aaron, and he forges it into this golden calf. Later on in the story, quite humorously, when Aaron's trying to explain to Moses what he did, he explains a little bit differently. He says, I I took this gold, I kind of threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It was crazy. And we have to remember about these people. These are the same people. Again, we don't quite know the time frame. These are the same people who walked on dry land with the Red Sea up on their left and on their right. As they walk through. These are the same people who saw the firstborn of all the Egyptian people die because of God's provision. These are the same people who every single day they have manna, which is basically bread that's rained down from heaven. That's what feeds them. Every day they wake up and there's all these white flakes of bread on the ground because of God's provision. These are the same people who said, you know what? We're not happy with that. We want some quail. We want something else. And God said, okay, I'll I'll give you this too. And now they're so restless, they say, we need something else. We want God's. And they look at this golden figure that has just been made for them. And they say, "These these are the gods. This is what it is that led us out of Israel, or excuse me, let us out of Egypt. What's going on? How could they attribute this golden structure with the God who delivered them, with the God that they've known, with a God who they made a covenant to and said, we will follow you. We want to be part of what you're doing in our world. Well, Aaron he has a response to what the people said. And again, he, he doesn't really toe the line here. He says in verse 5, he saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Just like that. This is what the Israelites are ready to be doing. Now, there's something very peculiar about what Aaron says here. I want you to look up on the screen or look in your Bibles and, and look at what he says here because something should probably pop out to you. Is saying, what, 
What is that about? And the interesting thing here is he says tomorrow will be a festival, not to this golden calf, not to this new God that we just created, but to the Lord. Tomorrow's going to be a festival to the Lord. Now, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see the Lord written like that with the uppercase letters that are in the small typeset there, that's a, that's a, a specific word to Yahweh. Yahweh is Israelite's God. Now, way back uh, several years earlier than this story, when Moses encountered the burning bush, he wanted to know, as he spoke with God, he wanted to know God's name. And God said, I am. Tell the people, I am who I am. And literally, uh, it's a YHWH is the transliteration of, of the, the Hebrew when we take it into English. And people have understood that to mean Yahweh. It's the actual name of God. And so when you see that in the Bible, this is a reference to Yahweh, and you should interpret that as saying this is Israel's gods. Lots of times we have references to kind of the lowercase g, God, or God's plural. Um, And sometimes that can refer to the God in heaven. But whenever we see Yahweh, that literally means this is Israel's God. So Aaron now is attributing this golden calf image that he created and then saying we're going to, We're going to celebrate a festival to Yahweh, this Israel God. And I'm kind of left thinking, how? What do the two have to do with each other? What's what's going on here? Aaron knows better. He's talking about Yahweh, Israel's God. They're talking about this is, is the God who delivered you out of Egypt, but yet they're looking at this golden calf. What in the world is going on? Now, I want you to remember the context of this story. The story begins with a problem. The story begins with the Israelites feeling a bit of apprehension. The story begins with them being alone and them saying, where's this fellow Moses? What are we doing? Where is he gone? Is he ever going to come back? And they're looking for physical reassurance. They've lost this presence of Moses. And Moses, at this time in Israel's history, he was really the intermediary between God and the people. The people didn't want to talk to God. There's a few stories where they just say, you know what, uh, Moses, you talk to God and then you come tell us what to do. We don't, we don't really want to be a part of this whole system of interacting with God. We're not ready for this yet. We, we, we don't want a part of this. And so when Moses all of a sudden disappears, they're a bit lost. They're not sure what's going on. They have no real physical symbol of Yahweh, Israel's God, being there in their life. And so what they're looking for here is hope. They're looking for something to reassure them of what's going on in their lives. And from the context of the story, it looks like Aaron feels the same way too because he doesn't quickly say, hey, no problem, Moses is coming back or, or uh, you shouldn't worry about this, everything's going fine. He, he responds the same way and says, well, you know what? We, we need some sort of hope. We need some sort of physical reassurance that God's with us. So let's, let's take all this gold, let's manufacture it together, and, and let's see what we can come up with. They wanted a physical representation of God. The problem is, is that their demand for this, their desire to have this, became their ultimate supreme desire. And as you learn in the story, they chose to do anything and everything to make that happen. They went beyond the bounds of of what God would have for them so they could satisfy this desire that they had. When Moses disappeared, the people were left with a spiritual void. And they chose to do anything they could to make sure that that wasn't empty any longer. 
They looked to fill it with a physical presence that they so wanted. Now, interestingly enough, a number of scholars, and, and, and this, is, this is quite interesting to me at least, a number of scholars suggest, you know what, the Israelites and Aaron, they weren't worshiping this golden calf as if the golden calf were in and of itself a god. They didn't make this calf and then think, okay, we have a new god, we'll name him golden calf or whatever they decided to. They didn't, they didn't create a new god, they basically just made a new image and, and they come to this conclusion because of this usage of a festival to the Lord and the fact that they're talking about all these references to what Yahweh has done. And so what they really understand this golden calf to mean is actually a bit of a pedestal. It's kind of a, a physical representation upon where Yahweh, the God, would sit upon. It's similar to what the cherubim do um, in, in the, the tabernacle later on after that is constructed. It's kind of the holding place of God's presence. And so what they suggest is that this is actually kind of a substitute for God's presence. It's emblematic, it's symbolic of where God is, even though that isn't necessarily specifically a God in and of itself. And so they take a good thing, they take a good desire, wanting to see God, wanting to know that God is with them, but then they turn that into their chief aim, into an ultimate thing, and saying, we want this so bad, will take any measure in order to get it. Here's a good definition of idolatry. Here's a good definition of idolatry. Idolatry is turning good things into ultimate things. Idolatry is turning good, wholesome things, desires, possessions, ideas, dreams, and elevating it into a supreme thing. Something that you and I will do anything to get. Something that we're willing to compromise on in life in order to achieve, in order to satisfy this, this void, this longing that we have inside of us. Israel wanted reassurance that God was with them. And that's a good thing. They wanted to know that, that Yahweh was in their midst. They, they wanted to know that someone was going to lead them. They wanted to know that there was a plan happening, but they were impatient. And they didn't know what to do. And so they turned to what they'd known before. These are people who were called out of their former lifestyles. These are people who saw the different pagan worship gods in Egypt. And this is what they knew. They knew a physical god worship. This, is, this was kind of their MO of what they were used to. And now they don't see Moses and they don't, don't see Yahweh God. And, and so they turn to something else to satisfy that need. Idolatry is turning good things into ultimate things. Now, how often do you and I do the same thing? How often do you and I take a good thing that God's blessed us with, a, a, a good thing in our life, and over time, how often do we just subtly shift that into an ultimate thing in our life? An unhealthy priority that all of a sudden we see, you know what, we're putting so much energy into this, perhaps it's no longer good, it has now become ultimate. This is how our understanding of idolatry can change. This is how our understanding of idolatry can go from, from creating wooden structures or golden images or, or big totem poles like we see in the context of the Bible. And it can balloon into something bigger. It can balloon into to something that helps us understand that anything and everything that turns us away from the direction of God is a form of idolatry. Whenever we turn good things into ultimate things, we sin, we commit idolatry. 
Now, this story is, as I said, kind of the first introduction that we have of idolatry, how it happened, what the people did, why they looked to fill this void in their lives with this, with this golden image. But the Bible goes on to talk more and more about it. And as different prophets and writers and speakers talk about idolatry, we get a bigger sense of, of what this is. We find out, you know what, it's, it's not just as simple as, as creating objects and bowing down to them. It's, it's not as simple as saying, well, we don't, we don't really do that, so we, we don't have to think or worry about that all that much. We get a much broader term of idolatry in our lives. The prophets speak of people setting up idols in their hearts. Setting up idols in their hearts. The prophets equate idolatry with people who depend on their own strength. As if their own strength, their own abilities have actually become a god in and of itself. Because they depend on their own strength and not on the strength of Yahweh. The prophets, in in one instance, they equate arrogance and say that arrogance is a type of idolatry. And it's not just in the Old Testament either. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he's much more blunt than some of these other prophets. He says greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It's not something that that we would necessarily build and bow down to. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's a lifestyle. He says that is idolatry. Now, I've, I've never seen someone like Aaron who collects gold jewelry, molds it together, sets it up, and then ends up worshiping it. I've never seen that in my life. I've never seen this type of idolatry. I know it exists still in some parts of the world. I I know that it's certainly still out there, but so much in our society, we don't see that much at all. But I think idolatry in our society is much more hidden than that. I think it's much more hidden than that. And I'll argue that hidden idols are much more dangerous and much more persuasive when we can't see them. I think they have a whole lot of power when we can't see them and we don't know what they are. And the tough part for us is that idolatry begins innocently enough. It begins with good things. It's simply turning good things into ultimate things. And good things are good, right? We want good things. We want health. We want good strength. We want uh, good families. We want resources. Possessions are a good thing. We want opportunities to, to influence other people. But whenever we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things, we stumble down the path of idolatry. When they substitute for our ultimate, our ultimate goal, our ultimate command to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we fall into idolatry's trap. We substitute the Lord God, Yahweh, for a counterfeit God. Now, Tim Keller is a, is a well-known author. He's actually the author of a book called Counterfeit Gods that we've kind of uh, used our sermon series to parallel with. And he suggests this. He says that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. And anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. It sounds kind of similar to what the prophet Jeremiah said in his book. He said to Israel, you have as many gods as there are towns in Judah. You have as many gods as there are towns in Judah. The possibilities are endless. The possibilities have no limit. Idolatry is turning good things 
into ultimate things. Just as I was thinking about different idols that may exist here in our church, in our society, and in my own life, I, I just started to think about a few of these things. A few things that are, that are good things, but given circumstances or, or people's temptations or how they're wired or things in their past are so easy to turn into ultimate things. One that came into my mind is perfectionism. I know this is something in my life that I've struggled with at various times. Perfectionism can actually become a form of idolatry. When, when people become consumed with making sure that things are just as they want them, when they seize control, when, when something uh, can't just be good enough, it has to be perfect, it can consume someone. They cannot be satisfied if they can't reach that ultimate goal. The, the persistent pursuit of knowledge can be an idol. People who are driven so much to, to consume information and to be an expert in, in many different fields and are so driven by that, that can be a form of idolatry if it turns into an ultimate ambition for their life. Idolatry can trip us up in the form of success, regardless of how we define success. If success becomes an ultimate thing in our life where we will do anything and everything to achieve it, where we want to be defined by our success and what we've accomplished, it becomes an idol god to us. Sometimes idolatry can be seen in patriotism or nationalism for, for a country or, or loyalty to an organization. If, if faith and strength and confidence is placed in a people system of any form, that can be an idol in our lives. Our own families can be idols. If we put our hopes if we put all of our time and our energy into a spouse or a sibling or a child, that can be a form of idolatry. In fact, even if we don't have those physical people in our life, even if we've lost a family member or, or a parent or a grandparent, and we think all of our hopes are now diminished, this, this system that we've created, this child that I want, the spouse that I want, the sibling that I never had, that can be a form of idolatry, turning a good thing, a good concept into an ultimate thing. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at specific temptations of idolatry, and we're going to go through them, and if you have your, your momentum journal, you can flip through them and get a sense for some of the topics that we're going to be talking about. Topics that can sometimes move quite swiftly from a good thing into an ultimate thing. Things that if lost, things that if misplaced or, or somehow gone in our lives, it can it can dampen our will to live, to keep going on because we've lost something that we feel like we have to have such a tight grip on. But before we can turn away from idols, before we can change our ways and, and confess to the Lord our wrongdoing, we have to name idols. We have to know what our idols are. We have to know what we struggle with. And the God of heaven is the only one who can reveal that to us. He's the only one that can speak to us and help us know where we have gone astray. So this morning, I want you just to have one simple application. I want you to ask God to show you the idols that exist in your life. Ask God, what are the things in my life that I have turned from good into ultimate? Where are the areas in my life that I have put too much hope, that I've put an unhealthy amount of energy into? Where have I put my trust and my confidence? What have I substituted in the place of God? What are the good things that have turned into ultimate? What are the idols that exist in my life? Frederick Nietzsche, he's a, 
well-known philosopher back in the 19th century who a lot of his written material went well beyond his years and was somewhat prophetic for us in our life and perhaps even beyond. Uh, He once said that there are more idols in this world than there are realities. More idols in this world than there are realities. And they come in all shapes and sizes. They can be physical. They can be abstract. They can be future-oriented. They can... can, uh, mess us up by thinking about the past. They can be concepts, ideas, things we have, things we don't have. They come in all shapes and sizes, and there are more idols in our lives than there are realities. What things in your life have shifted from good to ultimate? What idols exist in your life? As we reflect on on this message of, of what happened to the people of Israel and this void that they had in their life and and they're stumbling into idolatry, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's actually quite an appropriate thing to do because part of communion, part of the instructions that we have in the Bible is that we're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to look at our own lives and and think about where have we gone short? What are the things in our life that, that we have unconfessed sin about and we need to have God look into our lives and and in the perspective of him and say, these are things where you've fallen short. Here's areas in your life that are unhealthy. And so as you reflect on your life now, I ask you to, to ask God to open up your eyes and to help you see the idols that exist in your life, but maybe that you can't name right now. And so we're going to sing a couple of songs of reflection. And as you feel led, as you pray to God and as he reveals things to you and as you confess your sins, I encourage you to go to the, the different communion tables and receive the bread of Christ, receive the juice, and reflect on the great sacrifice that he made. Because all of us fall short of his glory, but Christ paid the penalty so that you and I could be righteous together. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would open up our eyes to see. So often we're content to not let our eyes gaze on on our shortcomings, to not look at the sin that's in our life that you see, but so often we overlook. And so God, help us to see what you see in our lives. Uh, Name the counterfeit gods in our life, Lord. Name the sins that we have committed that we have not yet confessed to you. Give us repentant heart, Lord. And help us to turn away, God, and to turn back to the true source, the true God. Help us to embrace you. So, God, may you open up our eyes to see. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the reconciliation that you give to us, to all who believe and to accept you as Lord. Amen.